1: Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin
0: saying but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp.
1: All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the
0: aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Will, have you gotten your Freedom Phone yet?
1: (laughs) No, I haven't. For listeners, this is a phone that launched last week promising to be sort of the official phone of the MAGA movement. It was going to have privacy and all this and come preloaded with things like Parler and the One American News and Newsmax app. So it is a smartphone, it's not like a cricket knockoff. Right, well, so, <laughs> so the way it works is, well, because I think crickets can be smartphones too, but just like not very expensive ones. So in this case, Freedom Phone, I had never heard of Freedom Phone until last week, and Freedom Phone kind of burst onto the scene by this gentleman, named eric finman who is the self-proclaimed youngest bitcoin millionaire his other claim to fame is he invented a quote real life doctor octopus suit so he wait uh, wait 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 wait
0: (laughs) we have to pause for a moment what can the real life doctor octopus suit do because if i recall correctly it's in comic canon that the suit takes over the body and makes you like this megalomaniacal villain that who parades around Manhattan.
1: in real life. It drives you mad. You become is, is, is that she- what this does? No, it's like you know, it's like you have the extra the arms around you like in Spider Man. So in this guy's case, so he kind of bursts onto the scene or bursts back onto the scene, and he says, "I've invented the Freedom Phone," and he has this like really good promo deal. Going with like what I said was like every conservative influencer who's less big than Ben Shapiro. Like, so he had like Dinesh D'Souza, he had Ali Alexander, who was involved in the January 6th, the, the protest outside the Capitol that, I mean, he planned it ultimately became the riot. He really had a whole bunch of people in, but Jack Posobiec. and they were all like, this phone rocks, gotta get this phone. <laughs> And, and so in his own video, and, and the other thing was these people clearly had no idea what they were talking about. They didn't have any specifications. No specs were released on the phone, which is like a very basic thing to do. They were tweeting about how great the phone was from their iPhones. Right, right, right. Candace Owens was tweeting and it said Twitter from iPhone. And these people are like, I switched a couple weeks ago. I love the Freedom Phone, this rocks. And so then one of these people, it was clearly the Freedom Phone OS, which is Freedom OS, was clearly just an Android knockoff. And in in these speeches or these endorsements, they would be like, is this an Android? No, it's a Freedom Phone. And so (laughs) what's going on here is that all of these endorsers are getting referral codes, which gives you for each sale of a $500 Freedom Phone, you get 50 bucks if you're one of these celebrity endorsers. So, you know, that's pretty decent money, you know, and that kind of stacks up. Like if you get, you're someone like Candace Owens with a couple million followers, you get, let's say you get a thousand of them. I mean, that's 50 grand. So would it surprise you to learn that the Freedom Phone was not all it promised to be? Yes, Will. It would <laughs> it would stun me. So the Freedom Phone is selling for 500 bucks. And the, pretty quickly I sussed out, uh, as, as did some other people on the internet, that the Freedom Phone is just a repackaging of this phone that's made, in mainland China near Hong Kong called the Umidigi, And this is like a budget phone for 120 bucks available on Alibaba. And this, now meanwhile, Eric Finman, the creator of the Freedom Phone, has been saying things like, this is the best phone in the world. And this is comparable to a top of the line phone from Apple or Samsung.
0: So did he just ship over a bunch of these Chinese phones and then like plaster a new logo on it? Or did he just like reverse engineer the exact same design oh no he just bought the phone (laughs) yeah he just so you're calling him the creator or the inventor but that doesn't even really scan well you know i say that he (laughs) claims they upped this i invented the swin shoe (laughs) i just bought a bunch of nike and
1: just wrote my name right in a way maybe eric finman is doing it's a classic streetwear thing he's the dapper dan of phones you know he's kind of freaking it but anyway so eric finman here he Basically, he took these really cheap phones, which, by the way, according to reviewers, are even by the standards of a cheap phone, pretty crummy. And you could you're spending 120 bucks on a phone. You could get a better phone. And so he repackages it and sells it for more than four times the markup. And people love it. The Freedom Phone. I think the sales have been brisk after my story came out a couple uh, the endorsers deleted their stuff, uh, their endorsements. Conversely, some people like Tim Poole have doubled down YouTube personality and said that Will Summer just hates this because it's going to free the internet.
0: So have you scoured the internet for actual reviews of this thing? Like people posting videos to YouTube of themselves
1: using it? Like, what? Here's the thing. So the Freedom Phone, on top of everything else, doesn't come out until August. So aside from the people who have endorsed it and have shown their unboxings, you know, the Freedom Phone comes in an American flag sort of valise case. It promises, obviously, comes preloaded with Parlor and also, confusingly, Fortnite. A lot of the endorsers were like, also Fortnite, I guess. <laughs> you can do that. No one who might be critical of Freedom Phone has really gotten an up-close look at it. Okay,
0: have you been able to track sales on
1: this thing? Like, is this actually doing well or is, the, or is this grift over? Is this just one end Well... I'll tell you this. We can't really get a sense of the sales, but I think the Freedom Phone people kind of knew that as soon as this got out, what this actually was, the game was going to be over. And the reason I say that is because, number one, it posted without any specifications. Number two, when I talked to the guy at Freedom Phone at his launch party, he was like... Oh shit, we're trending! Like hell yeah, you know it's going down. And then he said, "Oh yeah, I'll send you the specifications." Uh, okay. Well, forty-eight hours later, I did not get them. And so, so I think they were kind of trying to make it difficult for people to make this connection to this Chinese phone. And the other thing I would say about my conversation with Eric Finman, the the Freedom Phone inventor, is that you know he was talking to me. He was like, "Oh Will Summer, oh it's a badge of honor to get a hit piece from Will Summer. Oh be gentle, all this stuff." And then it's like, "Well, you are. This is not a particularly honest operation." <laughs> A lot of times when I interview people, they're like, I know what you're about, man, and I just think people can get along politically. And it's like, you know, I don't care about your politics, man. I care that you're you're selling this like knockoff phone in a deceptive way. That's awesome that he just said to you, it's like, oh, this is great. No publicity is bad publicity. It really was. It was so <laughs> funny. He was like, well, you know, we're just out of here selling the Freedom Phone. And then my story comes out and it's like, I do think it was probably not ideal for the Freedom Phone's future. But I do think that in a couple months, you know, if you have a particularly sort of red pilled relative you might be sitting there. And And they'll pull out their whip out their freedom phone. Okay, not to go too deep into this con, but what are they claiming
0: almost certainly falsely is unique about this? What makes it particularly free? Are they claiming it's unhackable or that? If you're using Twitter on this phone, the government or big tech can't censor you. Like, what is particularly marvelously
1: free or MAGA about this device? That is the claim. They claim it's like the only phone that's good for your privacy. How is that possible? Well, right. It's not. And here's the irony, that in fact, the Freedom Phone... Is according to security experts gonna be incredibly easy to hack, like incredibly easy because so apparently some of the tech that Umidigi is putting in its phones already. I mean, we're talking about technology that is, I think someone said one of it, one of the pieces in it is from 2012. And so this stuff they were saying it has known hackability, it has known security flaws, plus just having this Android clone that they're gonna have, it probably is not gonna be getting security updates. And it just is not really going to be a great situation security-wise, just not unlike, you know, whenever the, one of these pro-Trump social networks launches and just immediately gets hacked. And so, you know, there was also this whole thing where Eric Finman clearly realized that it did not look ideal to be selling America's most patriotic phone made in China, particularly for people who are like particularly wary of, like, who kind of think that anything made in China is infested with Chinese government spyware. And so he was like, well, I had it made in Hong Kong. And I was like, well, that is a part of China, though. You know, especially in the past couple of years, like kind of the whole story of Hong Kong is that it's not being treated as separate from China. But here's the other thing. Umidigi doesn't make its phones in Hong Kong. There's a lot of potential deception going on here.
0: I'm not a legal expert, per se, but is this guy maybe opening himself up to a bunch of fraud litigation?
1: You know, it's a great question. Well, certainly the way this has been pitched, and especially by the endorsers, I think Freedom Phone was a little cagey, wisely so, about the exact claims they made. But I think a lot of the endorsers were just like, this is the best phone in history. This guy, like, handmade this phone, I mean, or he invented all these parts himself. And obviously that's not the case. I mean, this was an interesting character, this Eric Finman, and I, I think he's an interesting addition to sort of our, our mega menagerie of personalities. It would seem to me that he would
0: have more respect, or at least come off as having more respect for his audience and his customers if he just repackaged burner phones. Because at least in that world, you can kind of see, oh, oh, the Better Call Saul guy uses them, and that must mean they're secure from the feds. There is nothing (laughs) to suggest that this would make you any safer from a hacker or the federal government trying to snoop on you or anything. But if you gave them like a cricket flip phone that you could just snap in half once you were done chatting with your drug dealer or whoever, that would seem to me like
1: a more honest play here. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. As someone quip, the only freedom you'll get from the freedom phone is a new lightness in your wallet. so in the past few days, some of our listeners might have heard
0: that TP USA, the very Trumpy, allegedly college and high school-focused conservative organization has been holding a multi-day conference. Speakers have included all the kind of extremely online MAGA luminaries that you might expect would show up at a party or event event hosted by a guy like Charlie Kirk. But there was also this row over this self-described conservative porn actress who also writes for The Federalist, who showed up expecting to get the VIP treatment, and instead it created this sort of weird micro-controversy at the TPUSA conference. Will... What did you think of the Affair de Brandy
1: Love? <laughs> so this is a, a whole saga that is still reverberating today as we speak, and the, the conference goes on. So this is a, as you said, a conservative porn actress. I think it's fair to call her a porn star, I think. So she shows up, and she has, a, I believe, a VIP pass. This is going to sort of presage a conflict between... The kind of your South Park Republicans, perhaps your bar stool Republicans, as they might be called now. Kid Rock Kid conservative. Rock conservatives, as yeah. she identifies, exactly. And your the people who think all the porn stars should be pro-Trump libertarians. Right, exactly. Basically. Exactly. And then more like the people, particularly your like younger weirdos. We talked last week about Nick Fuentes crashing CPAC, your groipers, as I said, the, the people who all of a sudden are extremely into the Latin mass in the Catholic Church. And so there's kind of this TPU USA, we oh, we're about family values and all this kind of stuff. But then at the same time, it's like, there's this conflict here. I mean, I, I think about Don Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle talking about how she likes uh, to dress up in a cheerleader outfit for him or whatever. I mean, this kind of this pull at the heart of the Republican Party. So Brandy Love shows up. And then like some of these Groiper adjacent people see her, they see her on Twitter and they say, what's this porn actress doing here at TPUSA? And I got to say, again, I mean, it is a little odd because <laughs> this is ostensibly like a high school conference. And there are not, I mean, not just tons of adults here who seemingly have no, have no reason to be there. So yeah, so she's there and this sets off like a big drama. And so, you know, she's taunting these Groypers. She's saying, I'm a kid rock conservative. And these are quote, anti-adult haters. Now I don't know if she means anti-adult in like the adult industry or like anti-adult in that these are children who are like, (laughs) why are all these adults like trying to get clout off of at best a college conference? Okay.
0: Her stage name is Brandy love. And she specializes in things like the hot teacher or what is colloquially known as MILF porn. So she was invited right? Like she did show up with a VIP pass before she shared an email showing that the staff at the TPUSA conference had unceremoniously booted her. Some may cheekily describe that as canceling her from the event. That's correct, right? Like it's not like she crashed the event or anything. She was supposed to be. She didn't just like wander in the front door, right? This is someone who writes for the Federalist, which is one of the Trumpiest online news outlets out there right now. She has been very explicit about her support for former President Donald Trump. And it's not like she came there to do porn in front of the children. She was just there in a capacity as someone with all of her clothes on to sort of bask in the glow of how great Trumpism and the modern Republican Party is. I mean, these sort of pearl-clutching objections to, oh, how could you have her there? My God, when there are children present. It's not like she was trying to turn it into a porn conference for the kids.
1: Well, and, and in that swing you have an ally in Federalist publisher Ben Dominic, who tweeted- Oh, dear God. Tweeted, you know, oh, leave Brandy Love alone. I thought we were the conservative bad boys, whatever. So yeah, so she gets the boot after a couple hours of pressure from both the groupers and And I have to say, I mean, it seems like the teens, or at least the college students, I mean, this is like a, an ongoing fight.
0: Were the Groypers not
1: kicked out of the TPUSA? Typically they are. And in fact, I believe one of the either speakers or maybe someone who who is set to appear at this week at TPUSA got the boot from that event after he was at CPAC with Fuentes. But, you know, there's all these Groyper affiliates. I mean, this is a lot of these young people are like incredibly far right and sort of see TPUSA as like a joke. That is basically like a place to party.
0: And to be fair, there were other highly visible MAGA personalities and people in conservative politics and legal world. For example, uh, former Trump attorney, Jenna Ellis, was tweeting about this. She brands herself as a staunch social conservative as well as a Trump conservative and talking about how, oh, if someone like Brandy Love can be welcomed at a TPUSA USA conference as a VIP, then what does conservatism even mean anymore? So there were other individuals kind of like getting in on it, trying to make it a bigger controversy than a lot of people thought it should have been. But the fact that the TPUSA people kind of caved and just gave her the boot actually was a little bit surprising to me because these conferences, no matter how much like of a wink or a nod they give to things like modern day social conservatism, are meant to just be a party for high school and college students. They tried to brand themselves as, oh, unlike the the effete too politically correct lib college kids, we are the actual fun ones. We are the ones who are better at memeing. We're the ones who are actually going to throw a much better, frattier party because we don't care about all of that liberal puritanism. Having someone like Brandy Love there fits
1: within that ethos. Well, it's funny you mention memes because today Benny Johnson, the meme lord himself, gave a speech about how good the rights memes are. And that's his only. He move. did his Fortnite dance. He's been doing that for years. It's it, genuinely horrible. Now that he has a family, he does like, he's like, I meme for the future of America's children and stuff like that. Like, so Benny gets up there and then he starts taking questions from the audience. And then a bunch of the questions are about porn and specifically aimed at <laughs> the whole Brandy Love controversy. And so this one young woman gets up and she's like, you know, how do we deal? She has all these like the anti porn stats and she's like, how do we deal with the prevalence? Is she a kid? I mean, she looked like a high school student and she was like, how do we deal with the prevalence of pornography, even in this very room, which obviously was a reference to the the Brandy Love thing, but kind of sounded like she was like, you know, throwing some shade at the other guy at the guys in the room or something (laughs) like these guys are are, are pervs. (laughs) It's like. Half of the TPUSA kids just suddenly look up from their iPhones, (laughs) blushing. This is sort of a weird split, but but it's one that doesn't really look to be uh, resolved anytime soon. And as you say, I mean, there is some irony here in that, you know, people have complained in the past about the raucous behavior at turning point conferences. If people have seen the classic film Shattered Glass, his fictitious account of young people partying at CPAC. While it's not at that level, typically these places are known, or at least have been in the past, as being very raucous environments. And so this idea that suddenly this is the meeting of the Tridentine Catholic's society i think it's sort of a, a rewriting of history
0: so mr TPUSA, charlie kirk has he weighed in on this publicly i don't all?
1: think so i mean i think you get the answer is he's just got him slide. getting ejected and, and there is like a long and storied history of people instantly getting ejected from TPUSA. but yeah i think it's an interesting uh incident fun
0: fact female porn actresses in the mainstream in the united states are overwhelmingly people like pro-Bernie people. Brandy Love is actually what I would consider an extreme outlier in terms of a Trumpy porn actress in the mainstream adult film industry. Fun fact. All right. Right.
1: Are are we getting a source of this?
0: (laughs) Overwhelmingly. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet.
1: Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing.
0: On this week's episode, we welcome Andy Richter to the pod. You may know Andy as a comedian and actor who, over the course of decades, has worked in American late-night comedy, most prominently as Conan O'Brien's sidekick and announcer. A New York Times piece on Andy and his time on Conan described him as such last month. Quote, The 54-year-old Richter brought a seemingly effortless irreverence to interviews, monologues, and comedy segments, injecting himself without overshadowing the man whose name was in the title. I, however, will always remember him as portraying Liz Lemon's brother on the 30 Rock episode "Luda Christmas." You can find Mr. Richter on Twitter at Andy Richter. Andy, welcome to Fever Dreams.
2: Hi, thanks for having me. How are you guys?
0: We're doing all right. Thanks for coming
2: on. And the
0: first thing I I want to uh, just sort of lay out there is that, look, anyone who follows you online can see that. You are, shall we say, a little bit to the left politically. You're certainly even more politically outspoken than some, but not all of your late night brethren. And you've described yourself as something of a, quote, socialist to me in the past. Can you expand a little bit on that?
2: Oh, just no. I mean, I mean, I'm a socialist and that I believe that government programs should help level the playing field in terms of quality of life for the citizens and taxpayers. That's simple. I basically want to live in Denmark or Sweden or you pick the high tax, everyone lives a decent life kind of place. I mean, they're all complicated, but that's just it. I mean, we're already a socialist country and I'm not the first person to say that. I mean, Social Security is socialism and... Having a fire department is socialism. Having a carpool lane is socialism. It's you spread it around. <laughs> it's a question of fairness, and um, we teach our kids. And I know when you're having a, you're becoming a father soon, and you know a basic thing that you teach your kids is that it's good to share, and it's good to share. It's not. Oh, am I supposed to do that? <laughs> yes, you will. You will. I mean, your wife will make you do it. And it's not a qualified lesson. It's good to share. But if you have some and someone else has none, give them a little of yours. And that lesson seems to be lost <laughs> on a, on a good majority of the American public. You know, you reach. It's like, yeah, yeah, kids should share, but then once you be once you get to be a grown up, fuck everybody. I got mine. Fuck you.
0: You've also talked before at length about how much despair, for lack of a better term, you you have been wallowing in recently. And now that we're, I don't know, about halfway into the first year of the Biden presidency. Why is that? There are a lot of people who have probably watched you on TV for decades and would be a little bit surprised to hear how thoroughly depressed you are about the current state of the landscape.
2: I mean, I've been depressed. I'm not depressed about it. I'm just exhausted and kind of frustrated and a little pissed off. And because, and I mean, and I, you and I talked about this before when that i mean yes i say i'm a socialist i'm a democrat and my feeling for the way things to move forward in this country are to make the democrats more socialist rather than the socialists more democrat because i just think that that's the quickest way that will be end up being the quickest way to to steering this giant behemoth into something a little more equitable and and that i could be really wrong You know, I mean, time, time could prove me truly, truly wrong on this instance, but being kind of what I consider a pragmatist, which just basically means I'm old, I'm 54 years old. And I think that most people tend to become more realistic as they get older. And as they see sort of, they're exposed to lots of different systems and the shortcomings of those systems. It tends to temper their youthful excitement about the possibilities of huge wholesale change which is in and of itself a bummer but it just happens you know i mean i've worked enough i mean just working in show business in tells me about don't get your hopes too high about about things being really cool and great i mean i have a really fun job but there's a lot of people that stand in the way and who are paid to stand in the way between here and things being cool and great.
0: That's actually something I want to pivot to in terms of your actual realm of profession. You've spoken, frankly, in the past about what you see as the limits of late night comedy, not just in a political sense, because I mean, I I think we know where we all stand on that point, but also in terms of the spheres of entertainment influence itself. And having had a front row seat to that enterprise for the past four years of the Donald Trump era... Um, what are your takeaways from that experience and particularly with regards to the former leader of the free world's obsession with late night TV?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, one of the things that was that's really that was really fucked up about Trump and that is fucked up about Trump is that he's not a politician and he's not interested in governing. He is in show business. And there's a bunch of people. The Republican Party is taking full benefit of the fact that he's turned political discourse and involvement in this country into pro wrestling. And it's useful to them because it keeps some people who don't really care that much about politics, but they do like, they do like to agree with a bully. Basically, they like to have their bully who has a kind of a white man swagger of, I don't, follow rules i make the rule and that is a lot of people's fantasy and he touches on that fantasy and like i say he doesn't give a shit about i mean anything but himself but he doesn't care about governing it's show business and he wants to be the biggest name in show business and if he if that means being the president then that's what's really cool and as far as and you know and that right there that fucks everything up there should be a separation of 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 showbiz in state in addition to church and state because it's not supposed to be entertainment. It's supposed to be actual sort of building roads and feeding poor children and making an economy work, those kinds of things that are not sexy and not fun, but they, you know, they're sort of the whole point of being in what should be public service. But the notion that, like, you gotta, that somehow late night comedy or entertainment is somehow really, truly affecting political outcomes, I don't think is true. I don't think anybody has ever been convinced to not vote Republican because of Stephen Colbert or Conan O'Brien or Jon Stewart or Trevor Noah or me. I think, and in fact, you know, like I'm political on social media. I'm not too political on the Conan show because that wasn't what our show was about. And that was a, that's a conscious decision that we've made over the years. We started out being about absurdity and silliness and then topical humor became a very big thing and very pointed sort of liberal leaning humor became, you know, it became, it became the smart humor and I'm making air quotes and we still felt like, no, that's a st- that doesn't sound like any fun. Let's just keep, you know, having masturbating bears and, and robots on the toilet and things like that, which is just so much more... In having a conversation once with Conan about it, he said he thinks that it's it's ultimately more valuable to the culture to have robots on the toilet rather than to be a cheerleader and, you know, preaching to the choir about that liberal is better than conservative.
0: Well, another late-night personality who... I think a while ago, just just a few years ago, might have fallen into that category, would have been ABC's Jimmy Kimmel. And you actually had a moment where you sort of saw in real time how that changed and why. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, I'm friends with Jimmy and his wife, Molly. And on the day of the Women's March, you know, the day after Trump's inauguration, Um, Molly had set up, just basically made it easy for people to go downtown to the women's march by saying, come park in the show's parking lot, which is in Hollywood, right by one of the Metro stops. She even had, I don't think she did it, but she had somebody go buy like 50 Metro cards. So we were all April, you know, there was a bunch of people that showed up and got on the train together. You know, we had to wait for like the third train just because there were so many people to get on the subway here in there in Hollywood and I said to her I said where's your husband and she said ah he's not so sure that the people at ABC would be crazy about him being so overtly openly publicly visibly political about something you know like starting and I think also too there were there were still a status quo opinion that like, well, you know, yeah, Trump's an asshole and yeah, he's a incompetent and y- you know, yeah, he's a racist demagogue, but I don't know, maybe the trains will still run on time. Okay. They weren't ready to fully pull the trigger on, oh yeah, he's a destructive fascist. So I think Jimmy was still kind of going under that sort of... That conception that, you know, like the bosses wouldn't want him being so obviously anti-Trump or so obviously any taking any kind of political stance, being obviously pro-Trump, I think would have been a problem, too. He had a child. Molly had a baby that had, um, I believe it was heart issues and had to go through a bunch of surgeries and it was very touch and go. And Jimmy just became an advocate for health care for, for everybody, you know, for universal health care, making sure that kids like his don't die. And and then he became very openly, you know, I mean, on his show political, like among the most political hosts. And I just think, you know, it, was a, it wasn't it was just that it took some It didn't just take him having a kid that was sick. I think it also, too, he probably would have, he would have gotten there even without a sick kid. I think just having, having a deathly ill infant that needed lots of medical care made him, it just accelerated the process of feeling very, very comfortable about saying how bad and destructive Trump was. The thing that's disheartening to me about the recent, it's why I'm not, I don't watch the news a lot now. And I mean, I still read things online and I, I get the LA Times and the New York Times online. And, and I, you know, and as much as I can read an entire article anyway with my ADD, I, you know, I read half articles, a, a lot of half articles. I just don't feel as engaged right now because I do feel like Everybody put all this work into getting Joe Biden elected, and you know what I mean. He, he wasn't my first choice, and I was sort of. And I mean, I in fact, early on in the race, I you know, my whole thing was just that he was too old. I, I but in retrospect, I do kind of think like, eh, I don't know if anybody else could have won. You know, I'm not a statistician, but I just. It just does kind of feel like, no, we needed, like, in this transitional period, we needed, like, a safe, middle-of-the-road old white man. Like, that just seems to be, like, calming to a lot of people. So it became him. And I mean, and he's done, you know, I feel like he, his heart's in the right place. He's, you know, but he is a creature of this kind of this machine. But I am really, I get really bummed by the fact that he won. And he won pretty handily. And every, but every single candidate was, was was representing different sort of policy issues that we just can't get through. You know, like now it's just voting rights, you know, health care, infrastructure. Um, I mean, there was some COVID relief, but just basically government money, you know, spraying a little gasoline into the fuel line and with government money to get things going, to make life better for people to change the wealth inequality and we all said, yeah, yeah, that's what we want, and we're still getting like, well, yeah, but you can't have that because of there's there's like a little sort of fringe margin area here where it's just it's tough. It's institutionally it's tough. Oh yeah, there's some people they really dug in their heels about. Well, who knows for what reason? And it's just fucking maddening, and it makes me under it makes me realize makes me understand why people check out and why people don't vote because it just doesn't seem like anything's going to really change. And that even though Republicans have done a very good job being a minority and staying in control and that's fucked up and something needs to be done about that because it's 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 an apartheid kind of state.
0: Something else that is a recurring theme on this podcast is that every once in a while, Will and I will talk about what we view as sort of the failures of political late night comedy, particularly, sorry to keep picking on them, a show like Saturday Night Live, especially since circa, let's say, 2015 and the advent of Trump as a real political force. Do you tend to take that when you look out onto the landscape of the Jimmy Fallon's and the SNL's of the world? Do you think I'm being too harsh or do you kind of look at it as a fellow late night cohort and kind of think to yourself, have a sort of like easy
2: rider kind of moment where it's like, yeah, we fucking blew it? Well, A, you can't expect too much of Saturday Night Live because Saturday Night Live is a TV show for teenagers. It just is. It's and it's and it's in a weird position where it's being Lauren Michaels is, I don't know how old, I bet he's probably in his, you know, at least his late 60s, if not 70s. And he's programming a show that's truly meant for teenagers. And so you're not going to get a lot of incisive, incisive comedy bits about international trade agreements or about the infrastructure bill. You're going to get sort of obvious kind of indicate stuff that goes for a kind of a lowest common denominator joke. I mean, I have friends on that show and and I people bemoan that, you know, that it's not any good or it's not and that's not entirely true. I mean, they still do some really funny stuff and there's still some really amazingly talented writers and actors on that show. And you can get, you can still get some really weird stuff on that show because there's some good weirdos working on that show. But if you're expecting them to fix what's right or what's wrong in the world, I should say, you expect them to make everything right. That's just, you're getting into a clown car and expecting the clown to be a good driver. (laughs) That's just not what they're there for. And I mean, to a lesser extent, you've got people like John Oliver, who does an amazing show and does a a great show that informs a lot of people about a lot of stuff. I watch that show. I don't watch it religiously because I, first of all, my basic thing with political humor is that I don't find politics that funny. I just, it's like, it's, it's just, to me, it's kind of too serious. It's, uh, it's just like something, it's, it's. I don't, it's not something that I want to, you know, make a bunch, write a bunch of knee slappers about because mostly it's, I don't know, it's like, it's like joking with the doctor when there's a serious medical diagnosis happening. That's not the time for it. Maybe later after everything's cured, you and the doc can share a laugh, but not right now. So John Oliver does a great job though, is, is kind of funny and it's kind of an outrage kind of pulpit, but I don't think that he's talking to anybody that doesn't already agree with him. I don't think there's a lot of Fox News viewers tuning into John Oliver and going, like, I feel like being challenged by this English guy.
0: I mean, why would they do that when they have the, like, just knee-slapping, incisive wit of the Greg <laughs> Gutfeld late-night right, show? Right, exactly. Who, quite frankly, <laughs> ate your and Conan's lunch for the time it's been on.
1: I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Andy, now that Conan's over, are you moving over to the Gutfeld cast? <laughs> I don't think so. I can't even remember. Like, I, The last
2: time I probably saw Fox News was when I was touring an assisted living facility looking for a place for my aunt and uncle to live. <laughs> and then, every TV in the lobby had it on just blaring. But no, I, I don't, I'm not even, I mean, I know kind of, you know, that that's their sort of like irreverent witty show, but uh, I mean- We all know, you know, how hilarious right-wing comedy is.
0: Okay, you're a long-time comedian. You know, obviously, a lot of people in the field, both mainstream and not so mainstream. Can you tell us
2: who are the funny conservative comics? (laughs) I'm dead serious here. (laughs) I'm trying to think of anybody that is even that I know is kind of like right wingish, say like a Tim Allen, somebody that's not necessarily an overtly political comedian, but is but you happen to know is right wing. And I would say they're all about as funny as Kevin Sorbo. <laughs> that gives you some frame of reference. I honestly there's I can't think of anything off hand, but I mean, but you know, I mean, occasionally there will be like a a meme that'll come through that's I do think though that like the paintings of Trump being blessed by Jesus. The, the John McNaught yes, being blessed by Jesus, those are pretty <laughs> fucking hilarious. That is top-notch right-wing comedy.
0: There's a lot of amazing, unintentionally funny. Pro Trump humor or quote unquote
1: humor out there. I, I, I'm i with you on that. If I could just interrupt you here, I mean, the conservative comics, I mean, the action is on TikTok, guys. They got things like the conservative hype house. They got all this kind of stuff. And that's where the conservative comedy goes down.
2: But, Will, do you find any of it funny? I mean, it. No,
1: it's not actually funny. I mean, right. It's clear. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. You have to look at it. I'm not seeking it out. I think there's some Stockholm syndrome here where I I consume (laughs) a hundred of these guys and then one of them, I'm like, well, that's all right. Yeah, yeah.
2: A lot of comedy, not all comedy, is, is looking at a situation- and going, huh, look at that. That's pretty fucked up, right? That little aspect of it that nobody else kind of caught. And then everyone goes, yeah, that is fucked up. I mean, that's, you know, observational humor is, you know, you take it from the basic thing about airplane food. Everyone's eating airplane food. And then you've got somebody whose job it is to just put the words together in a way that makes you think about airplane food in a way that you haven't thought. But it's a subversion. And when you're coming from a white male power base, it's kind of hard to subvert. You're not subverting to subvert the sort of liberal agenda, which is just to basically, you know, the liberal, what is the liberal agenda? But to say like, yeah, maybe we should take some tax money and make life better for poor people. Like to subvert that, where's the laughs in that? Like, that's just kind of mean. When you're so heavily invested on the side of power, It's a powerful person making a joke about unpowerful people. That's like a scene from a movie where a bully like laughs at a kid when he's laying on the ground with a bloody nose. That's not funny. That's just cruelty. And that's, I think, that's why it just doesn't work very well.
0: I mean, all the scenes from The Simpsons where Nelson and his friends are like wailing on the dweebs or the nerds, those are pretty funny, but it's always written from the perspective of the writer who definitely was not the
2: Nelson in that scene when they were a kid. (laughs) In that instance, I think it's the absurdity of cruelty. Oh my God, why are they being so mean to these? Why are they actually causing physical harm to a completely non-threatening entity? Like that's... You know, there there's an absurdity there that's kind of funny. And also, too, the, the trauma of being bullied, you can process it by laughing at a funny, at cartoon people bullying each other, especially when that great, ha, ha. That's so fantastic. Just that laugh is says more than somebody's dissertation about cruelty in comedy and about bullies in humor. Just ha <laughs> ha. That says everything you want to know about what's funny about bullies is just
0: Well, I think there's one way I can change your mind. I'm gonna send you in one email all of my like hilarious killer anti-critical race
1: theory one-liners and i'm gonna change your mind on this you're gonna see the light so andy you're obviously an observer of our contemporary scene today big day jeff bezos goes up in space why do you think these guys are so interested in going to space and why does jeff bezos dress so goofy he's got like a like a cowboy hat and
2: everything (laughs) well because he's this fucking incurable nerd and then he's also a nerd that hasn't been told that he's wrong for about 30 years. So it just, that's a twist you and, and contorts you into being even fucking weirder. And also I think money, money makes you weird. Money make, people talk about like LA being crazy and full of weirdos. Beverly Hills is the weirdest fucking neighborhood in this town because you see people who are absolutely physically, emotionally, spiritually warped by wealth. From their fucked up faces to just like the weird clothes they wear and just that they they just don't ha- they don't live on the same planet that we do. And I find them much more strange than anybody walking down Hollywood Boulevard in the supposedly weird seedy part of LA.
0: And you've spent a good chunk of your life having to sit down and interview or co-interview these people. And one of these individuals even before he became a reality TV star, was Donald Trump himself. If I recall correctly, you and Conan interviewed him back in the year 2000, and something interesting happened on that show. Can you recount that?
2: Yeah, he was on more than once. I had forgotten about it, too. I maybe mean, just because... But, I mean, I forget it a lot. I mean, we did literally thousands and thousands of hours of television, so it's easy to forget when individuals were on but somebody somebody at work had it they they played it back and i did remember It was when he was on and I don't remember the chronology of it uh, because he came and he also, he came, I left the show for eight or nine years in 2000 and he came on a few other times when I wasn't on there more than he did when I was on there. And the one time he came on, he was single. So I I think he maybe had left Marla Maples because he also came on with Marla Maples and with Tiffany on the show at one point. And I swear and I, like I told you, I, went into the makeup room, and uh, Tiffany, who was, I think, two or three at the time, was getting full makeup, and I believe she had uh, hair extensions at age three. So did I when I was two or three. (laughs) Yeah, but that that was more because of a medical condition, not just a vanity thing. Yeah. So he was on, and he was single, and was very jocular and very jovial. But I mean, at that time, too, he was like kind of he was a clown. You know, he was in New York. He, nobody really took him seriously. I mean, the one thing he did is like he got the the ice skating rink built quickly. Like, the, But other than that, you know, he bought things he couldn't afford and then ran him into the ground. And that was just kind of the status quo on him around New York. But also, too, he was a huge... Peahound, as we say. So he was always on the make. That was the other thing, that he was ladies' man, I guess would be the nice way to put it. But Conan asked him, just as a, you know, I mean, this is like the oldest trick in the book to do with a rich guest. How much money do you have on you right now? And Trump reached into his pocket. And when he pulled out the money, he had it in his front pocket, folded over, a condom came out of his pocket. And he held it up and went, oops, (laughs) safe sex, everyone. (laughs) And everyone was, ah, ha, 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 ha. it was, was kind of gross, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's kind of gross. I don't really have a tremendous amount of interaction with the people that I don't, that I'm not fond of. I say, hello, how are you? And, you know, and I'm civil and everything, but I don't really engage much. It's funny. I do the same thing with people that I'm really sort of starstruck by too. They so it's like I react exactly the same with people I feel are beneath contempt and people that I feel too scared to talk to.
0: Are you just saying that now because you're trying to cover up for the fact that the moment that condom hit the floor, you were like, "Oh my god, this is the coolest motherfucker I've
2: ever met." <laughs> I, I, I high him. Can he do him. that? I high five him. I had him autograph the condom. I
0: still <laughs> to this day. Well, on that terrifying note, Andy, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Come Come back anytime.
2: Oh, thank you so much, guys.
0: And now we come to our most beloved segment of the hour, something we like to call Fresh Hell, a segment in which we introduce our audience to something shit that they may not believe is happening in the real world today, but nevertheless, certainly is. Will, you've been following the conservative coffee wars. Help
1: me out and wrap my head around this because I gotta be honest, i
0: tried earlier today, I'm still a
1: little bit confused. Yeah, right. So obviously in the past we had the Tea Party and now we're they have the Coffee Civil War. So there's sort of a feud breaking out here between the... I, I'm trying to sort of set the stage for our listeners about kind of the attitude these coffee companies are going for. And the, the kind of the main coffee company we're talking about here is Black Rifle Coffee Company. And you can kind of tell from its name, these are dudes who I believe are military veterans, but they often kind of pitch themselves. It's that kind of like... Veteran, in particular, like, tactical operator chic. Like, you know, maybe if you want to look like you're rappelling down in a bottom and you have a coffee cup that says, like, shoot first or ask questions later something like that. Okay, so if you want to steal valor, drink or coffee. <laughs> you know, it is kind of funny that I i feel like a lot of these companies do like they sort of pitch themselves as like the legal okay way to steal valor because like in the past it was like well i can't just go like buy metals or or like that'll look bad but what if i just like talk about how like badass i am and i talk about doing or i use all these like military acronyms and stuff coffee mug that says i dropped white phosphorus on fallujah but the back of it says not really <laughs> Just kidding. So the Black Rifle Coffee Company has for several years now sort of made their way by being like the the bad boys of the coffee industry. I remember a couple years ago, they kind of broke onto the scene because Starbucks had said that they were going to hire something like 50,000 refugees or immigrants. And Black Rifle said, well, we're going to hire 50,000 veterans. And at the time, Black Rifle had like 30 employees. So that just seemed like a really obvious lie to me. I think Starbucks already has a program geared
0: specifically towards U.S. well right right exactly i mean so
1: this whole thing is just like how can we get the press release how can we get the pickup from newsmax or fox news and i remember at the time being like well there's no way they're gonna hire fifty thousand people i said this to a a conservative member of my family and i was like this is obviously a lie he said well but you know i hear it's pretty good coffee and that kind of tells you that that's what it's about right i mean you just get the brand out there so anyway so they kind of grew into this whole media empire and now we have this new york times magazine profile from jason zingerly of black rifle coffee's founders and the difficulty they're in right now is they've spent several years kind of appealing to the worst attitudes particularly in the American man about one of their initial things was they sold targets with like range targets with hipsters on them that kind of stuff and all of a sudden they're like wait are controversial and not very nice people into this and so they had Kyle Rittenhouse wore one of their shirts and they had to distance themselves and then of course that angered their fan base and then most notably one of the kind of premier capital rioters was wearing a black rifle coffee hat okay
0: two things well first of all you ruin everything for me. I mean, this black rifle coffee could be awesome. And those shades, those sunglasses we talked about on last week's episode look kind of cool. And I can't drink or wear any of it now because you're making me too, feel too dirty about it. That's number one. Number two, I love how Black Rifle Coffee is this perfect little metaphor for what has happened to the Republican Party over the past four years. It's like, oh, we spent all this time cuddling up to the worst elements in the conservative base and the Republican Party. And now we're stunned to see that we've gotten some blowback on. No, it. No,
1: I mean, it, it t- Totally. I mean, right. Like, if you read this Times profile, it's very, like, they're effectively saying, like, I thought I could make money off of people's worst impulses. Like, I didn't know it would be bad for me. I mean, it's like there was a, a QAnon promoter recently who posted some sort of Q, like, it, what was taken as a symbol that he's a member of the pedophile cabal. And then he had to say, like, no, I'm not, no. So it's sort of in the same way. <laughs> now Black Rifle finds themselves tied to these people, and also a group of people that's, like, not super into compromise. And so they've been Getting incredibly mad at Black Rifle, and they sort of find themselves walking this line. And so, in this Times profile, they kind of try to distance themselves pretty hardcore from some unsavory elements. So, for example, they say things like, I hate racist, proud boyish people. I'll pay them to leave my customer base. He says, You know, h- how do we? Proud boys would a thousand percent take him up on that all. They got bills to pay. <laughs> right, right. Right. Well, they have legal bills to pay. And so, you know, in this case, and so they say it's sort of these things like, It's a repugnant group of people, it's the worst of American society. And I got to flush the toilet of those people that hijacked our brand. And so this has obviously irritated a lot of one-time Black Rifle coffee fans. And, you know, this kind of falls into the the world of, like, performative consumerism that's very popular on the right, where it's like, you know, they smashed their Keurigs in the past, and now we have, it's like, I'm burning my Black Rifle shirt. Okay, so have you ever had Black Rifle coffee? I I, I don't think I've heard about it since you flagged it for me. No, opinion. and honestly, I feel like my taste buds wouldn't be able to, I mean, I'm sure they're just getting them from somewhere, you know, it's the, but yeah, I mean, you know, now people like the Gateway, they're getting mad, right? So they say, like, Gateway punishment it says grifters you decide and at the point where gateway pundit is like well, I think this guy might be grifting us I mean that's a pretty I mean these guys were on board with the freedom phone so now enter stocking mill coffee a rival coffee company oh oh no yeah so what do they
0: have what do they have on their products like do they just have Trump's visage. How are they going to one-up Black Rifle on this?
1: Well, so they're kind of a lower-budget operation, but these guys basically have emerged exclusively as the thing people buy when they're mad at Black Rifle coffee. It's like a very parasitic relationship. A conservative and veteran-owned coffee company
0: providing the best premium beans roasted fresh for a fair price. And their
1: slogan is, Arrive Violently? Oh, great. Wait, what? I don't quite understand it myself. They just say <laughs> arrive violently. Why do you want your coffee to arrive violently? Because it's got to be badass, Swin. When- It's not a cappuccino or something. It's coffee.
0: I just clicked on the StockingMillCoffee.com website, and the first thing that comes up is like a skull and crossbones looking thing, and the crossbones is a musket and an axe and then an hourglass looking red logo, and says, welcome, are you for common sense gun laws? And then there's a no and yes button.
1: Well, you know what happens if you click you are for common sense gun laws? It takes you to a website called BagOfDicks.com, because I fell for that. I was like, yeah, it seems reasonable to me. And so basically these guys, they only exist so that whenever Black Rifle does something... They're kind of like the the Newsmax or the OAN to Fox News in that they sort of, when there's a controversy, people are like, screw this, I'm going to stocking mill. And yeah, I mean, you know, they have pictures here of various animals on their coffee and tactical gear. So you know, they have a coffee bean wearing night vision and holding an AR-15. And so, yeah, I mean, sort of the, I think there's a microcosm for the Republican Party in that for so long, there was nothing to hold that stop them from politicians from being pushed further right. And in the same way, I think we see our coffee bean companies now being sort of in a, in a competition to go right. You do have to wonder. I wonder if we should blame the left for these developments since ever since Caribou
0: Coffee endorsed Antifa as a legitimate <laughs> organization. I kind of get why your average rank and file Republican voter needed something like a black
1: rifle or a stocking mill coffee there to wake up in the morning. It is funny, it's just like my coffee needs to shoot somebody. <laughs> you know, like how do we get to this?
0: On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from the Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at the Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions.
1: We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.